On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving, at your desk, maybe at the gym, but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Yeah, so the clock says 3.39 now. Two deliveries left. I think uh, this will be the last one before the tea adjournment. Australian soil. Ashwin gets the wicket. Hello listeners and welcome back to Cricket Unfiltered, the News Corp Cricket Podcast. I'm your host Andrew Mensel, aka Menas, and in studio joining me I have Tom Supercoach Sangster. Tommy, how are you? Very well, thanks mate, and good to be here again. Great to have you here and also thanks for getting me in the Supercoach League with Shane Warne, Michael Vaughan, Issa Gua, Kerry O'Keefe. I'm looking forward to sledging morning as the super coach season moves forward. It's a seriously strong league. That We've got Mel Jones signed up the other day. Howie is in. Uh, Harsha Bogle is in there wow. now. So it's a, it's a who's who of super coach talent, including yourself at your first crack. Yeah, I feel left out. I feel like the odd one out. All right. And the other panelist today is cricket analyst Paul, the summer game, Dennett. How are you, Paul? Good, man. It's great to be here. Um, it's wonderful that the test season is in full swing. Nothing better, but I'm very, very pessimistic about Australia's chances, and I just wish we'd won that first test. I agree, and we spent all weekend commentating on the Sheffield Shield together at the SCG, which was highly amusing. It was great fun. It was a, it's always a privilege to be at the mighty SCG. Even when it's empty, it's still got that beautiful, intimate feeling, and uh, some good performances. I was really impressed with Kerry. Um, I think that his century was the highlight for me of the game, and we talked about it on air, and how maybe he'll be the, the replacement for Tim Payne at some stage in the not-too-distant future, and that century is certainly not going to do his cause any harm. Absolutely, and listeners, we have a big show. We're going to dissect the first test, the Aussie loss. Then we're going to wrap up the cricket headlines, which includes a, a Women's Big Bash League chat. And then we're going to bring it home with the analysis of the last four Big Bash teams that we did not cover in last week's show where we went through the squad. So we've got four teams today to go through. But let's start at Adelaide. The first test was won by India by 31 runs. It was India's sixth test win in Australia. And their first win in Australia since January 2008, which is a significant result for them. Now, you know, it got close in the end, but I'll start with you, Tommy. I think Australia really lost it in their first innings batting when they conceded a 15-run deficit, when they really should have got in front, bowling India out for 250. The match was there for Australia's taking and we just weren't good enough. Yeah, I tend to agree, but also in our second bowling innings, there was a period there where we really lost the plot. Mitchell Stark lost the plot totally and conceded there was about 20-odd buys that went down that Tim Payne could basically do nothing about. They should have been wides, really. So, look, I feel we lost it in in our second innings bowling. There was a period there for about two hours where our players got frustrated and were trying to take take wickets when they just needed to build the pressure. Even Lyon got frustrated there. He was obviously our best bowler by a long way. But Mitchell Stark is the guy who, who cost it for us. Without those 20 buys, which should have been wides, we almost win the test. But don't you think our first innings batting cost us? I mean, if one of our batsmen had, had made a 100, we'd have got the lead and then, you know, the pressure's all of a sudden right back on India. Tough pitch to get a big score on, though, and that's why Pajara did so well, is that he can go along looking ugly as and still manage to just churn out runs. Classic yeah. test matching that, Cla- that one Exactly. And, and, well, yeah, I mean, he's essentially the new... The gritty. New, he's the new Rahul Dravid. He, he doesn't look quite as good <laughs> when he does it. 
the batting, yes, 100 would have been good, but really we needed our batting is not what we're about. We needed our bowlers to step up, given that that's our strength, and I feel like Mitchell Stark really did let us down. Hazelwood was good, Cummings was good, and I thought Mitch, uh, thought not Lyon was a little bit impatient at stages, but he was definitely our best bowler. What do you think, Paul? Yeah, I think that it was, I agree with all with all of that, and I think that I hope we're not going to rue the fact that we got so close in this first test match because India, I think, are only going to get better. They had a pretty weak warm-up game, and that was their only red ball warm-up game. Historically, sides come to Australia and get belted in the first test match. I know it's often at the Gabba, but for them to come here and not only just be competitive, but to get the win, uh, they'll be better for, for the run. As I say, I don't want to keep on harping on it, but uh, I think we've got, to, we've got to do something in Perth because I think otherwise it could be a long summer. Good news about Perth, though, that the pitch is looking really bouncy. People are saying it's, uh, speaking of Trent Copeland recently, he played there a couple of weeks ago for New South Wales. He's saying it's like the whacker of 10 to 15 years ago, the old whacker. It's going to be hard on the batsman, really, and the bounce is going to be tough for guys to handle. I know Coley's done well in bouncy conditions before, but a lot of the guys would not have faced that before. It's not just good for Australia's chances, it's good for cricket because the... When there's a really bouncy pitch in Perth, it really adds something to the summer. So I've I've seen that in the early games that it does seem to be that old-fashioned bounce. And so really looking forward to this test. It's also inconsistent bounce as well. You see some scoot through. I don't think the deck is totally flat, which means you get some really fly through when they hit a little ridge and other ones go down when they hit the downside of the ridge. So it's going to be really tough for the batsmen. I'd be surprised if this test lasts more than about four days. Well, it sounds like it's going to be a tough pitch to bat on. Tim Payne said at the end of the test match that you could see signs of the Indian attack waning throughout Australia's chase. Do you agree with that observation, Paul? Um, I'm not so sure. Uh, it wasn't something that I necessarily observed. Uh, I think it's a good thing for him to say. But I, I think this Indian attack is clearly the best bowling attack they've ever brought to Australia by a, a considerable margin. And I sent out a tweet the other day, slightly facetiously, but probably mainly true that if I had to pick one fast bowler across either side uh, to be in my team, it would be Jasper Bumrah ahead of all of the Australians. And I, I sort of think that he's going to get better as the series goes by as well. And Ishant Sharma, I have always thought was no good at test level. His um, work that he did with Jason Gillespie during the off-season in England seems to have revolutionised him as a bowler. He bowled pretty well, um, I'd say very well, in the in the winter on the tour between uh, the, when India toured England in the winter. He started pretty well here. I think he's a different bowler than he used to be. He's the sort of bowler who can bowl the absolute miracle ball, but then there's a whole lot of junk in between. He's got rid of a lot of the junk, but I remember back in the day where Ricky Ponting was essentially his bunny. There are players who cannot face the ball that comes into them. Ricky Ponting was one that had a weakness against that, and we've got a couple in our team at the moment, namely Aaron Finch. Yeah, great delivery by Sharma to get ahead. He just managed to get some real bounce and pace out of the pitch on the last day, and head was really hurried up, hit it in the air and caught, and it was the, well, not the turning point, but a crucial dismissal on that last day. If Australia would have, you'd think, going to win the game, you would have wanted head and marsh to, to get them off to a good start. And if you could blank out the player so you didn't know who was batting then you'd show that to 100 people and you'd say 100 people would say that was an Indian on Australian wickets getting out that way it's very unusual to see an Australian getting in out to an Indian bowler on that way so when everyone says the pitch is bouncy we've got a chance in Perth I agree with that but so do the Indian bowlers Tim Payne said I just don't want to talk about DRS it is what it is a lot of balls seem to be going over the top of the stumps which live don't look like they are. What's your reading of that, Tom Sangster? Oh, well, look, you go and play in the UAE like we did a couple of months ago, and there are balls that clearly look like they're going over to the naked eye and they're hitting the stumps. It's the total opposite here. It's just Australian decks. The ball, even in Adelaide, which is not the bounciest deck going around, the ball bounces probably a foot higher from an average uh, when it reaches the batsman from uh, a good length delivery. That's just the way Australian pitches are. So you I don't know no how he's DRS. DRS is fine. It's, it's here to stay. Oh, look, you know me, man, as if my wife finally convinces me to get a dog, which I really don't want to do, my trade-off will be that I'll call it Hawkeye. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's fantastic. And look, the one thing I'll say with what, what Payne says is that a lot of people would agree with him. And what I wish they would do is do more testing and publish the testing. They did a lot of testing at MIT. And the only kind of thing I can find about it online is the former CEO, David Richardson, saying that the, the margins of error were tiny. Go to a German university somewhere, 
throw the testing opening open, let's everyone see exactly how it's done, publish the results, and I'm confident it will show that the Hawkeye is very accurate, in which case everyone can settle down, or if it shows that it's not accurate, well, that's really important. Agree. Now, there's a big conundrum for the Australian batting order with what to do with Aaron Finch and whether he should open the batting or move to the middle order. And I think Ricky Ponting, uh, during this test, made a really good point, in not about exactly where Aaron Finch is batting, but the thinking going into these selections by the selection panel that, you know, when they plan to put Aaron Finch opening in the UAE, were they thinking far enough ahead to this series at home and then to perhaps England next year? Because it doesn't look like Aaron Finch is suited to opening in our conditions. And, you know, Ponty's questioning whether they should, you know, actually pick an opening partnership and try and build one that's going to be long term. So where do you sit on this Aaron Finch debate? Oh, look, it's a tough one because he's got obvious weaknesses against balls that nibble away and obvious weaknesses against length balls that come in as well. So he's not set up for opening at this level. But I just wonder if, if people went into the into a test match with a one-day outlook, how he would actually go. Obviously, Aaron Finch is one of our great one-day openers. If he come out, came out and battered, well, that's like what it he was did a one Sharma, though, in the first innings, and his stumps went cartwheeling all over the place. I think it's worth a crack, go because you've got guys like Sean Marsh, who average less in test cricket than they do in one day, and, and even 2020s, I think, in the case of Marsh. It's the same with Finch. Why is why is that the case? You should be averaging more. If you bat like you do in an, in a one day game, how would you go in a test match? I actually agree with that. I think that people would say, "Oh, it's different," and, and yes, it is. But I think that Australia has got too much into the mindset of in the past we've been too gung ho. Look at Pajara; he scored really slowly. We've got to do the same. Well, Pajara always bats that way, and I think that in the second innings. Some of the Australian batsmen uh, got marooned and really needed to show a little bit more uh, positive intent. And, I mean, yeah, Finch got out playing an extravagant shot to, uh, to Sharma in the first innings. But I, I do think that he's not going to succeed going out there and, and scoring at a strike rate of 30. Um, he's got to play his natural game. I, I could live with him going down the order, and I think it would help Kawaja to open. I know that he had great success against the spin in the UAE, but he didn't look so good against the spin this time round. Second innings, they often open with Ashwin, but in the first innings, they're not going to get Kawaja in there when the when the quicks are on. Well, that would also bring Finch into the middle order, and he could be a bit more aggressive than, say, Hanscom or Head, if you were to, say, have Harris and Kawaja opening and Hanscom three, Sean Marsh four, maybe Aaron Finch five, and then Travis Head six. You just have that sort of aggressive player in the middle order who can take the attack to the Indians. But I think this Perth Test match is crucial for Finch um, staying at the top. I think if he has another double failure, come the Boxing Day Test, there'll be a different opening partnership. I feel like some batsmen have a certain amount of balls that they can face before their concentration absolutely goes in a test match. And it's guys like Sean Marsh, Aaron Finch, Shane Watson was a classic back in the day where you get to a certain amount of balls. It's generally around 150. It all falls apart. So these guys have to do as much in their 150 balls than, that they can because we know it statistically it's all going to fall, fall apart from there. So I think more attacking play from the Australians. Uh, we went away from our roots there. We batted really defensively. And that's not what Australian teams do and it probably won't happen at Perth because there will be a little bit more pace. And the pressure that they're under is part of the reason they do that. You look at Nathan Lyon, comes out to bat with no pressure. No one's expecting Mm. him to score. He just plays freely and naturally and in this game um, was just about our best batsman. Also, Robert Craddock uh, was writing throughout the test and saying one of the problems with Australia's batting order is we only have two gears, first and fourth gear, with yeah. nothing in between. And we, we saw it stages throughout the test match. Australia really got bogged down and weren't able to turn the strike over, weren't able to get the twos and threes and just keep the score ticking. So I guess that's something they need to work on. Yeah, it's a good call from Crash, and it's a, an underrated thing that Australia used to do in the glory years with Ponting, Hayden, uh, all these guys. Hayden's one of his best shots was he'd nudge it down the ground because the mid-on and mid-off would be so far back because he played so so strongly down the ground. He'd just block one down the mid-off, take the single. Langer had been on strike. Such an underrated, such an so underrated play. So frustrating. Such an underrated play from him, uh, and it's the sort of thing that the Australian team now needs to start doing. Yeah, it's a concern when you've got someone like Kawaja in the second innings getting out, playing an extravagant shot having scored at a strike rate of 19. And I think that exemplifies Craddock's point, that 
he batted in first gear the whole time and then switched to fourth gear and got out. What did you make of uh, Marcus Harris's test debut? Uh, Paul, what did you think of uh, Marcus in his first match? I think he made a pair of 26s, so there'll be frustration that he didn't go on, but did he look like a test opener? He looked solid. He looked good, and I hope he goes on and proves me wrong, but I just think that his overall record is indicative of someone who is going to struggle to average 40-plus in, in Test cricket. I mean, he's done that in the last couple of years in the Shield, but overall, his, his average is, is closer to 30 than 40. It's just so tough at the top level. I wonder if he's going to be another one that in, in years to come, you look back on and had a few Test matches, did okay, but didn't quite um, nail down a spot, and I hope he proves me wrong. Yeah, I mean, well, realistically, he wouldn't be playing if Warner and Smith were in the side. But I still think it was pretty promising debut. He took the bowlers on, probably more than uh, any other of the actual batsmen in the Australian team. He's back in Perth for this test, which is where he grew up. So hopefully he can turn one of those starts into a big, sto- big score. Now, Travis Head, he's played three test matches now. He's made two 70s in Tough situations. The first one was in the UAE where Australia battled to draw the test. And then in the first innings here when Australia was in trouble, he made 72. I think this guy's got something, doesn't he? I mean, he's shown that he can score runs in tough situations, and that's what we need. He's got a bit of class about him. He That's, that's definitely true. I still feel that T20 and one day are his best formats. He's, again, he's one of these guys who's got a limited amount of balls that he can face. People lose concentration after 150 balls. It's statistically true, and he's one of those guys, whereas... we we'll have to get the stats department to check this out yeah. for the next show, Tom. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to pin you down on this theory as the summer goes on. Fact. <laughs> he's what another you- one. Look, give him full credit for those two seventies. There's no doubt about that. But he's another one, and I, I sound boring and curmudgeonly, but... He's played 77 first-class matches at an average of 37. Is he someone who is going to go on and average 40-plus at Test cricket? Well, he's only 24, so he's young enough that maybe he's, in, he's improving. Mm-hmm. So, look, obviously, at the moment, he's definitely um, one of the first players picked. I think his development as well has been stunted a bit by being given the South Australian captaincy at a young age. He was 21 or 22 when he was appointed South Australia's captain and, and probably an unfair amount of pressure and work to, to a player trying to still develop their game. The other question is, did he bowl in the test match? Can't remember. I don't think he did, and he should have, because Nathan Lyon was doing some, getting some serious turn there, and it's interesting why they didn't choose to bowl Travis Head when he is a pretty decent bowler in the T20s and the ODIs. He bowled a tiny bit. Two overs, none for 13 in the second innings, two overs, none for two in the first. I completely right. agree with you. Could have been used more. Definitely yeah. should have been used more. All right, so the Test Series moves on now to Perth for the second Test match. Australia have a squad of 13 with Mitch Marsh and Peter Siddle, the 12 and 13 in that squad. Is there any chance they would make a change? I don't think they will. I think they'll stick with the same 11 uh, unless uh, there's an injury. I don't think they will, but it is a quick turnaround. It's only three or four days in between the Tests. So you could understand if they did go for a Mitch Marsh coming in at, say, six, so that they've got an extra bowler there on what is going to to be a pretty bouncy deck and, and will suit the quick bowlers. Right, guys, do you have any conclusions from the first test before we move on? Oh, just that. I think that India have proven that any doubt is, um, any doubt is wrong, that they are the real deal. And Coley didn't really perform in this match. They've got Prithvi Shaw, who's due to come back either for this second test or the third test, who is, if you haven't seen him, he's like a cross between Tendulkar and Gilchrist, potentially. He may well be the best of them all. Australia outfielded them. Uh, if, if we hadn't got that run out of Pajara or that great catch of Coley or the catch of um, Hanscom to dismiss Sharma, they would have got a lot more. So I'm really um, hoping that Australia can turn this thing, thing, things around in Perth because uh, otherwise it's not beyond the realms of possibility that India could beat us 4-0. I said last time I was on the show that Ashwin was the key. Uh, if he takes wickets, they win this series. And he bowled well, took a, took a bunch of wickets. And that is... For me, going forward, still the absolute key to this series he is the most the most important player in this series. If Ashwin takes wickets uh, when he hasn't done in Australia before, and generally spinners come over here and get absolutely smashed, if the spinner takes wickets, they will win this series. Well, it's a good call, Tommy, and uh, good stuff, guys. All right, so that was the first test wrap. Now let's talk about some of the 
coverage innovation. So we obviously had Fox Cricket and Channel 7 broadcasting the test match in simulcast, and it was a historic moment for both networks. And they did provide some stuff we haven't seen before. I'll just go through some of the things I've noted that... I really enjoyed Fox's quad call. So when a big moment happened, they would replay it and they would have at first the Fox commentary and then they would uh, play the commentary from the three radio stations. I thought that was really good. Yeah, that's always good. I love that sort of stuff. Uh, I used to love it in the Olympics when they'd an Australian would win a gold medal and then they'd show the American call of that same race. And um, I think it's fantastic. It gives a really good um, uh, impression. It would be good to hear the Indian call of it, although I think that the uh, Indian English language feed is is being done out of a studio in Mumbai, which is a bit of With a... Michael Clark. Uh, oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, actually, I did know that. What do you think, Tom? Do you like the quad call? I'm neither here nor there on that. What about um, when they turned the commentary off for an over and they let... It. You're an old wiki keeper. <laughs> yeah. Did you think Pant went too far with his sledge? No, Was he talking too much? Was he getting too much in Cummins' face? That is tame. You should put a... Mi- <laughs> oh, mate, I've put, got it in play against a, you. Put a microphone on any grade wicket keeper <laughs> in Sydney right now and much, 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 much worse would come out. Definitely. He toned it down because he knew that... Well, he knows that there's a stump mic there. I don't know if he knew that they'd turn the commentary off. I have a feeling they must have an arrangement where they go, okay, this over, we're going to do it. And the umpires know and they pass it on. They must. And I think Punt has known that, oh, here's my chance to be a bit of a star. And um, I thought the stuff that he was saying to Cummins is, uh, was, was funny. Like, so, you know, come on, Patty, Patty, hit a six, Patty. And then the the best was when he Cummins let go a, a wide long hop, and suddenly Pants going, he's not putting away bad bowling. It wasn't even that bad of a ball either, but it was—he's just getting in his head. It was there was nothing malicious about it. There was nothing personal there. It's absolutely fine, and all it shows is that Pant is a serious character, and Australia is—if well, they don't already love him—is going to absolutely love him. Not just because of that, but because of his batting as well. Some of those pl- strokes that he was playing against Nathan Lyon are absolutely loose, really loose, trying to hit him over mid-wicket when he's spinning the ball this much and, and bouncing it. Some pretty crazy stuff, but it shows he's got absolutely no fear and Australia's going to love him. Ian Healy said on the last episode of Cricket Unfiltered that he would prefer less talking to the batsman. He, his preferred method was to talk to the short leg about the batsman <laughs> um, rather yeah. than talking directly at them <laughs> and using their name. He thinks that's maybe a bit too much distraction and... Yeah, so just just different techniques, yeah. different ways to sledge. Now, one thing that I really enjoyed what Channel 7 did was when they would go to an ad break in the test, they would keep the score in the corner in like a watermark fashion. It's great. Yeah. And I thought that was a really good idea. I was flicking between the two coverages all day to suss them out. And it just sort of made you feel like you were still in the game, just having the score there. Yeah, it was, it was good. I liked it as well. I'm interested to think to what the advertisers think about this, given that there are people potentially not concentrating on their ad and looking at the score. I guess you don't want people flicking what... away. Yeah. So if the score is there, you might be yeah. more inclined just to stay there. Yeah, I'd be interested to speak to someone at Channel 7 and see, see well, what the view is there. Get on the phone. Get on the yeah. blower. You're a journo. Come back to me next podcast. Let's do it. <laughs> I thought it was a good idea, and I think that Ultimately, it's, it helps the viewers, which probably should help the coverage. Although I can, I can see the, if you were flicking around and thinking, okay, I wonder what the score is. Oh, it's an ad. I'll have to sit and wait till the coverage comes back on. You could then say, oh, there's the score. I'll keep on going. So there's that as well. Yep. But oh, I think it's a good thing. I really enjoyed the post-match coverage by Fox Cricket. They had the Cricket 360 with um, Crash and Jared Whateley. And I love that kind of hardcore cricket analysis and I just really enjoyed at the end of a day, you can sit there and digest what you've just seen with some good coverage. They have good interviews. And as a cricket podcaster, it's the sort of stuff I love. Yeah, it's great. And it's come on the back of some seriously big success for the NRL and the AFL versions of these shows. People, yeah, people love the hard-hitting journos like Paul Kent on NRL, Jared Waitley on AFL and Crash Craddock on the cricket. It's great to see people with serious insights into the game who aren't necessarily players or ex-players, people who are just working the phones all day, uh, getting the nitty-gritty of what's happening behind the scenes. I'd have no trouble if they had a show like that on 24-7 and just um, <laughs> rotated the host. 360, 24-7. Cricket unfiltered 24 <laughs> hours a day. You know, that I, if, if I was sitting at home and had nothing to watch on TV, I'd watch that all day long. Um, just people talking intelligently about the game. Um, 
That's fantastic. And I want to issue a warning to Gus Warland now. <laughs> he has a show called Cricket Tragic. So don't get too upset about this, Gus, but I'm coming for that show. Eventually, I can see myself hosting the Cricket Tragic show on Foxtel. <laughs> I just feel like he's keeping the seat warm for me until I, I get there. But it is a good show, Cricket Tragic, another one for the cricket lovers. And uh, it'll be, eventually be mine. All right. The, the last dream big, man. It's dream big. It's going to happen. It's, gonna, it's like when you Gilly, certainly are more tragic than him. It's like when Gilly was waiting in the wings to take over the keeping for Australia and Ian Healy knew he was there. It's a very similar situation. And finally... They, they started this in the domestic stuff, but they did it in the test match, which I was surprised about. They did interviews just after the drinks break while, while the players were sort of wandering back. And the Fox Cam would interview, I think, Marcus Harris and that kind of thing. What did you think of that ac- access? I think it's good. I mean, um, I'm just so into the cricket that I, I don't really care personally because I'm, uh, I'm a bit weird. But I think that for, for, for normal people, it's a great, um, great insight. That, and why not? They do it in all other sports. Now they're interviewing people as they walk off the ground at half time in, in football and stuff like that. It doesn't really distract them. And um, yeah, it, it certainly it would um, glue your eyes to the TV if that came Especially on. Especially for a casual viewer who might not know a lot about the players, or might not, not know as much about them as we do. That sort of gives them a little insight. All right, listeners, we are going to take a quick break on Cricket Unfiltered. I just want to remind you all the best way to keep up with Cricket Unfiltered is to subscribe on a podcast app. There are plenty out there. There's an Apple and a Google podcast app, but there's also Player FM, Pocket Casts, just to name a couple. So go and find a podcast app and subscribe and you'll get every new show delivered to your smartphone or computer. And there's two shows a week over summer, so it's the perfect time to subscribe and it look if you've got any cricket tragic friends i would suggest telling them about cricket unfiltered all right we're going to be back with headlines and also my first ever century calls in the sheffield shield on the weekend zappa delivers and larkin whips that away to deep square leg and there it is that's a hundred for the new south wales opening batsman he brings it up off 197 balls. Cooper to Hughes. He cuts. And that's through. That's going to go for four in front of the Barongal stand. And that is Daniel Hughes bringing up his fifth first-class century. What an innings of 236 deliveries. You're listening to Cricket Unfiltered, the News Corp Cricket Podcast. I'm here with Tom Sangster and Paul Dennett. How did I go with those century calls, guys? Was I all right? Pretty damn good. Pretty damn good. I thought... I didn't realise it was you to start with. I thought, oh, this is actually a professional caller. <laughs> and then when I realised it was you, I was I was shocked. Actually, that's exactly what I thought as well. I, I just thought, <laughs> this is far too professional to be menaced, surely. I'm getting roasted. <laughs> no, no, it's a compliment. Back, backhanded compliments. Yeah. We thought you'd be trash, but you're okay. <laughs> All right, now let's get on to our the headlines of the week brought to you by Sydney's The Daily Telegraph, the place to keep up with all the cricket news. The Sheffield Shield first segment has finished. So they've played six rounds and now they take a big break until the end of the Big Bash. Out of this round, there were some notable performances. Alex Carey made 110 at the SCG and it was his second first-class century and it couldn't have come at a, a better time for him with Payne having you know, slight injury worries with his finger. It's good to know your, your second keeper is in form. Yeah, absolutely. But I've got a, I've got a question for you guys. You were there at the SCG. What's the go with the pitch there these That's days? That's a good question. Tom. It is just seems it is, flat and boring. Yeah, it's and not a good pitch. Is doing. It's not a good pitch. There's no life in it. It's not good for the fast bowlers. It's not turning that much. And you know they, they need to get more life in it before the test against India because yeah. you know this game, the CA eleven game, and the Shield game before that, wickets are not falling, and and it doesn't make for the best viewing. But back to your question about Carey, that's his second first-class ton, which I believe, off the top of my head, is more than Tim Payne has scored in his career. That's right, yeah. So Tim's it's good news. scored one a big double Yeah, so it's, 10 years ago. Look, it's good news for Carey. He's got his average up around basically at that 30 mark now, which is almost good enough to get you a job in the batting order as a pure batsman in the Australian team at the moment. It's pretty clear that he is the heir apparent. He's, he's going to come in when Payne eventually goes, and it's just a matter of when Payne goes, whether they keep him when Warner and Smith come back or whether Carey's going so well that he that he pushes his way into the side. Either way, in terms of pure wicket-keeping, Carey 
absolute gun. I reckon our best since Healy. And Payne is about on the same level as well in terms of pure wicket-keeping. And as I've said on the podcast before, all I do, I'm a wicket-keeping nerd, all I do is watch wicket-keeping when most other people think that a wicket-keeper's gone well when you don't notice him. I'm noticing everything that they do, and I, I think that both Payne and Carey are seriously, seriously good wicket-keepers, uh, almost in the Healy bracket in terms of pure wicket-keeping. Big call from our keeping expert here. What did you think of the SCG pitch, Paul? Well, I thought the, the test match last year was not as not as turning and not as bouncy as I would have liked. And I think that that was the case in this match as well. That it was, it wasn't, um, it wasn't what I remember as, as of SCG pitches of, of your. I mean, the worry is when there's no slips in for a lot of the game, it sort of takes the quicks out of the the game. Yeah, and, and look, hopefully they can. Um, they've got a few weeks till, till the Sydney Test match, and I, I, I presume that wasn't the wicket they're going to use for the for the actual. No, because it was over on the yeah. left side where, from where we were looking. So, so well, you know, they've got an opportunity to really um, to really do something. All right, another big performance in the Shield. Queensland chased 414 to win in the fourth innings. They were rolled for 107 in the first innings, Queensland, and they turned it around in a massive fourth innings chase. Queensland at one stage was 6 for 271 in the chase, but then Michael Neeser and Jimmy Pearson put on 143 to see them to victory, and that was the match of the round. George Bailey, though, for Tasmania, returned to form with a 109. He's given up the Tasmanian captaincy. He's given up the Hobart Hurricanes captaincy. So we're just seeing here a shift down in Tasmania, I think, where George Bailey's moving out of the system there and I wouldn't be surprised if this is he goes on the T20 circuit oh yeah 100% that's probably what's going to happen if he can if he can get a gig and it's going to be interesting to see how he goes in the big bash because that will be the key indicator to see whether he can get a contract somewhere else in the world and the other big performance in this round of Shield cricket was Nick Madsen in, in his first Shield game for Victoria made 162 it was a fantastic innings but then in the second innings he was cruelly felled by a Jai Richardson bouncer and had his arm broken so he's out for around 5 to 7 weeks now and I mean firstly what a performance for him to make a big 100 when he when he in his first appearance for Victoria yeah, absolutely. And one of the disappointing features of that innings was that he gave a caught and bowled chance, which was dropped and um, dropped onto the non-strikers' wickets, which ran out Maxwell for about fifty-seven. <laughs> so that would have been nice for the, him and Maxwell to both get some runs. But yeah, good on him. Uh, I think we said in the call um, during the, the the Shield game when we were looking at the around the around the grounds that he's still young enough, um, and he's still everyone knows what great talent he's got. He's just played the one Test match. This stage, a lot of people would say he'll never play another one, but you just never know. And it's a cruel blow to get a broken arm, though. Yeah, I've always been a massive fan of Nick Madison. He, he basically hits it as big as uh, he's one of the best attacking batsmen going around in the country. Just the consistency always has been the issue. But the guy who hit him with the bouncer, Jai Richardson, how good is he bowling at the moment? If someone got injured, I know, I think they've got, is it Tremaine who's in the I think Siddle's over Siddle. there. Tremaine was the 14th man. Yeah, I mean... How close is Jai Richardson? I know we've got so many good bowlers. Uh, you have the to moment, ask the selectors because it changes you, every couple but of months. For, for argument's sake, if you lost Mitchell Stark, who's that real strike bowler who can come in, bowl bumpers and yorkers, if you lost Mitchell Stark, would you go for a Jai Richardson? Well, he must over be in the frame because he went to South Africa last yeah. year, so he must be over in, a steady, in discussions. Yeah, over a steady... T- I mean, it would depend who got injured. If Hazelwood got injured, you'd probably put Siddle or Tremaine in there. Funny but thing if, about Richardson, he's not a big guy. Yeah. He's only a little bit taller than me. Uh, he's quite slight. He's a little bit more than a little bit taller than you. Okay, he's, <laughs> he doesn't tower over me like most <laughs> fast bowlers. So let's update the Shield ladder. So it's six rounds. Victoria on top with 31.97 points. And look, I won't go all, through all the points, but New South Wales are second, Queensland third, WA fourth, Tasmania fifth. And second to fifth are all within four points of each other. So when the Shield resumes, it'll be all to play for. The only team really struggling is South Australia, who are at the bottom of the table, and it's over seven points behind fifth spot. So South Australia are the ones with the most ground to make up, but the top five, uh, it's all going to be a close run thing into the final. All right, the Women's at Big Bash League kicked off a couple of weeks ago. We've had three rounds. Defending champs, the Sydney Sixers sit atop the ladder. It's a, it's a tight ladder. All the teams have either... 1-2 and lost one or 1-1 one, one and lost two. So there's not much between any of the teams at the moment. But there is one player who's having an ex- astonishing start to the Wimsby Bash, and that's Elise Perry. She's played three games 
and is averaging 234 with with a century and 250s. I mean, a great start for Elise Perry. Yeah, brilliant. And some of those sixes that she hit at North Sydney Oval was seriously big. The hitting that goes on in the women's game these days has improved a lot. And uh, Elise Perry, absolutely on fire. That strike rate of 141 is off the charts. Can't wait for it's next year, isn't it? That the, the WBBL relocates to October. Is that right? Correct. Um, it's going to be a, um, a pretty landmark moment in Australian sport. I think that October at the moment is a little bit of a there's, there's an opportunity for a sport to really claim it. It's kind of um, after the, the the league and Aussie rule seasons are over. So it'd be great to see if the WBBL can really make an impact in that month. There was a significant record broken in the last week. Yazir Shah, the Pakistani leg spinner, became the fastest ever player to 200 test wickets. He achieved the milestone after just 33 tests. The previous record holder was Australian leg spinner Clary Grimmett, who achieved the mark in 1936 of 36 tests. I know you're a big Grimmett fan, Paul. You must be a bit disappointed to see him uh, nudged out of the top spot there. <laughs> um, yeah, Clary Grimmett was a. Well, he's one of those ones that when New Zealanders get angry about Australia claiming Farlap and Pavlova, they get angry about that as well because Clary Grimmett was actually a New Zealander who had to come over to Australia to get a game because that was before New Zealand played Test cricket. So I didn't know that. So well, thank you. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, to be fair to Yasir Shah, um, Clary Grimmett's strike rate was sixty-seven balls per wicket. Um, Yasir Shah had a strike rate has a strike rate of um, fifty five balls per wicket. So wow. Grimmett was back in the day where you could you know he probably bowled about a thousand overs, playing lots of timeless Test matches. Grimmett had a better average, twenty four versus twenty eight. But I mean Shah's one of the the best bowlers to watch. Uh, I remember when he was playing, they had a big sign up in the ground saying, "Who needs Leo Messi when we've got um, Yasir Shah?" Because they do look a bit like a bit alike. <laughs> and yeah, he's um, he's caused Australia some torment in the UAE in the past. Yeah, well, he's just worked out how to bowl over in the UAE. He's perfectly suited his game to those conditions. When he came over to Australia most recently, he, he struggled a little bit, as do most spinners coming over here. But in those UAE conditions, he's almost unstoppable. Big win for the Kiwis in that series. They one year for the first time away to Pakistan since 1969. They won the series 2-1. Ex-New South Wales off-spinner Will Somerville took seven wickets on debut, so a great start for him. How good the 34-year-old accountant who was considering giving up cricket only a couple of years ago went on to play for New South Wales in a couple of games, got plenty of wickets at the SCG, and now he's playing test cricket. How good. 34-year-old accountant. Yeah, great story. We love a, uh, an underdog story like that. All right, so that was the week of cricket headlines. Now it's to the listener mail and listener feedback segment. Well, we've got a great email here from Samuel Hickey. Mate, love the show and love the passion you demonstrate towards our great game. I agree with Tommy that ODI yes. cricket is a dying form in Australia. But this is where Samuel goes a bit off the ropes. Hear me out on this idea. <laughs> I reckon they should scrap ODI fixtures but keep the ODI World Cup. Here's the twist. For the World Cup, nations can only include players that have played a certain amount of test matches. So it could be rebranded as the Test World Cup. Thoughts? Cheers, mate. What do you think of Sam's little crazy idea? I think he's gone a bit left field with that one. I think that the idea itself of just having ODIs limited to the World Cup only, that's something that Shane Warne has floated. And I think in an ideal world, there's something to be said for that. Maybe if I had an ideal world, I'd have ODIs limited to the World Cup only and create an annual tournament a la the Six Nations in Rugby Union where you have a tournament once a year where there's some importance attached to it as well. It's just never going to happen because although it's a dying format in Australia, it's an absolute money spinner still in India. You, turn, you, you can have as many games as you want in India. The TV ratings will go through the roof. The average Indian will say, I'm keen to turn it on because I want to see if Kohli's going to score any runs, and they will watch it. And as a result... When the overseas sides go to India, they make an absolute fortune as, as of doing it. So there's just no way that I think we can ever see ODIs limited to the World Cup. And they've even gone the other way. They've got rid of the Champions Trophy now, and they've tried to get this, uh, they're trying to get this ODI league up for, to make bilateral one-days have a little bit more importance attached to them. So that's the, that's the route they're going down, and I can see why they are. How bad would one-day cricket be if you made test players play it? Like you had Pujara Puj- batting out 50 <laughs> overs, 80 not out. Well, the opposite would happen is that you'd suddenly give 20 test matches to Darcy Short. And <laughs> Just to get him ready for the World Cup. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so Sam, you've, you've gone a bit too left field with that one. Good email, though. Thanks for getting in touch. 
Now we've got a review on iTunes. Now, Damien Fleming on his podcast, The Bowlology Report, he's often bragging about how he has listeners from all around the world. Well, mate, the Cricket Unfiltered has listeners all around the world as well. I don't brag about it, but I did get a review on the iTunes in Norway, which I have to read out. This is by JJ. I could have listened to you chat cricket with Jim Maxwell for hours. Keep on setting the bar high with each podcast. Legendary. So thanks for that review from Norway. And uh, Damien Fleming, you're not the only one that is consumed in Scandinavia. (laughs) And finally, I want to thank a listener who dropped, and you would have loved this, Paul. I'm going to bring it in for you to have a look at. He dropped into my cafe in Sydney, the Australian Cricket Yearbook from 1976. And I don't know if the um, person that dropped it knows, but that was actually the year I was born. I know I sound a lot younger on this broadcast, but, uh, yeah, so thank you to the listener who dropped in the Australian Cricket Yearbook from 1976. It's got some great mullets in there, so a lot of hair, a lot of hair in that edition, I've got to say. That was the last time Channel 7 broadcast Test Cricket from Australia into Australia. That summer, they and the ABC 75, 76 Channel 7 showed it, which is something I only found out recently. Can I drop one other piece of breaking news? Yes. Which um, I just discovered today. You might have already mentioned it before, but um, it's not the world's biggest thing. But in the IPL, the Delhi Daredevils are now called the Delhi Capitals. They've um, been rebranded. Huge. Huge. Thank you. Huge. I'll go back and re-record headlines just so I can get that in. I thought you were going to say they've been... You know, they've been Even that wouldn't have, been, it wouldn't have rated for you. <laughs> Thanks to all the listeners who reviewed or got in touch. Remember, if you want to email me, it's auscricketpod. That's A-U-S cricketpod at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at amenners, A-M-E-N-N-E-R-S. Um, so get in touch. If you Please leave a review on a podcast app about the show. It gives great uh, feedback to me and also people trying to find the podcast. What's your Twitter handle, Tom, so we can keep abreast of your super coach? Tom, it's Tom Sangster SC for super coach. Paul, where can they find you on Twitter? Uh, At the underscore summer underscore game. I think you've got the most followers out of the three of us here with about 17,000. Way ahead of me. All right, we're going to take a quick break, then we'll be back after the break with our analysis of four of the Big Bash teams. Welcome back to Cricket Unfiltered, the News Corp Cricket Podcast. I'm your host, Menes. I'm here with Tom Sangster, Tom Supercoach Sangster, as he's known, and Paul the Summer Game Dennett. And it's now time to... Turn our attention to the Big Bash. It starts in just over a week. It is so exciting. Last week we went through uh, the first four squads. Now we're going to go through the second four. A lot to talk about, but there's two bit. There's two bits of news I want to start with. They're instigating a bat flip toss now. So instead of tossing a coin at the beginning of a Big Bash game, they've had a bat design that apparently is designed in a way that it's a 50-50 chance, so it's not hills and flats. It's aerodynamically designed that it gives the person calling a 50-50 chance, and they're going to toss a bat instead of a coin. Take that, NASA. Yeah, what do you think of this idea? Why would someone go to so much effort to aerodynamically design a bat just so it could be used as a gimmick for the BBL toss? It doesn't make sense for me. It's one of these little gimmicks that comes along with the with the BBL. It's much of a muchness either way for me. Uh, it doesn't do anything for me, but I suppose... I've said that so many times about the BBL and been proven wrong. I'm, I'm sure this is not going to, re, you know, this isn't going to be major. But they do a lot of little things like that that the kids love, and um, it's a, it's a minor little thing. One concern I had was that in Victoria they seem to call it um, roofs and flats, and I just found that weird. Jeez, you know, they've got, they've got everything's different <laughs> down in Victoria. I, I like the idea. I think it's great. I think it's going to be something if you get there early and you see them tossed about. It'll be better than just seeing a coin go in the air and hopefully you'll be able to buy these um, and people all around the country in your backyard cricket you will have a aerodynamically designed bat for tossing before your backyard cricket might be the opposite of the warner bat that's actually aerodynamically designed to hit the ball this one might, <laughs> it might have a middle that goes yeah, you can't bow with meters. it you can't bow with it <laughs> it snaps and the other innovation that I've noticed is the Brisbane Heat have put a batting cage to the side of the field so if you're the next person in you can go into the batting cage and hit a few while you're waiting which is like a baseball thing which I, I love 
Oh, I love it. I'm surprised it's taken this long. It's uh, Not only is it a great gimmick for the fans, but it's just, you just need it. If you're going out and trying to hit sixes straight up in a big bash game, coming in with five overs to go, you need to have this warm-up. It's been happening in baseball for years. Why hasn't it happened? Why has it taken so long? It's yeah, fun. and I think we'll see it all around the country soon. Well, it's funny that it hasn't happened before because even at test level, the biggest thing about cricket is getting your eye in. Your first 30 balls, if you can survive that, you can flourish. That it would make sense to actually be out there right next door and, and practicing. It could actually um, catch on at all levels. All right, now let's get into the four squads that we're going to analyse today. Let's start with the Melbourne Stars. Just a reminder, Melbourne has never won the Big Bash, either the Stars or the Renegades, devoid of the Big Bash championship. You could say uh, Melbourne Stars are the perennial underachievers of the competition. Uh, Tommy, what are some of the features of their squad? Definitely, yeah. I I think they are underachievers, and they came last last year. So they've really reinvigorated their squad. One of the problems they've had in the past is that they've had arguably the best squads in the league but their guys have to get they get called up for Australia or their internationals get called up for their international sides and they can only play half half the tournament for example whereas this year they've got a whole bunch of guns who look like they're going to play for a big section of the tournament. First on that list is Dwayne Bravo, who is a great signing for them. They've got him from their Melbourne rivals, the Renegades. So that's a pretty good coup in BBL terms. CJ Bravo, the yep. champion. Has he still got it with the bat? He had not the greatest batting season last year out here. Yeah, he wasn't great with the bat last year. He tends to bat a bit lower now and come in as a bit of a floater in the order and try and hit sixes as opposed to building an innings. He, yeah, he doesn't quite have it with the bat anymore, but his bowling is still good. He topped the wickets yeah, last did, year, yeah. equal top of the is wickets. Is he someone you'd have in your super coach team? Look, I wouldn't because the stars don't. I've mentioned that you've got to target the double games in super coach. The way that the rounds work is that some teams play twice in a particular round, which is obviously a massive advantage. So. Uh, you've got to target guys like Scorchers and Heat for the first round because they've got the double, whereas the Stars don't have a double until round 10 off the top of my head. So you'll be getting Bravo in at about round 10, and then they've got two doubles coming up from about 10 to 14. So he's going to be a captain for the for the last four rounds or so. Now, for Menes' performance in, in, in the league that he's in, is that sort of information stuff that you will advise Shane Warne and other people of? Is, yeah. is that a little advantage that Menes can have? No, I'll tell everyone that. I'll tell everyone that. It's hard because I'm going to release this podcast. I am thinking if there's any really good tips. Censor it. Yeah, I'm going to censor it later on. Redacted. Uh, Look, one thing I noticed today, Glenn Maxwell was announced as Melbourne Stars skipper. He said he's going to open the batting and bowl four overs every game. (laughs) I don't know know if he said that in jest. I hope he's being serious. I hope he's being serious too. But I have doubts about Maxie being called up for Australia's one-day setup. I think he's might find himself on the outer of Australia's one-day team in January. That's just speculation, which means he could be available for pretty much the whole Big Bash. So yeah. I think he could be someone who could score a lot of points and score a lot of runs on the field. The other one is Ben Dunk had a shocker of a year last year, but uh, I think this could be a bounce-back season for him. He always him. seems to do that. He's up one year and down yeah. the next time. And he's scored the 10th most runs of any player in Big Bash history. So you'd have to expect that he bounces back. With Maxwell, Gilly made a really good point in the, the Foxtel coverage in, against, um, I think it was India in one of the, the, the T20 internationals. He, he showed Maxwell's T20 international stats compared to Coley. And Maxwell has an average of 31, whereas Coley averages 49. Maxwell's strike rate is 157 and Coley's 136. Gilchrist made the point, Maxwell could afford his strike rate to drop down 20. It would still be one of the best going around and his average would rise. He, he should, and hopefully the captaincy will do this, be a bit more selfish. It's fine for him to be 20 not out of 20 because when he gets going, he'll still get going. That's what the Melbourne Stars need. They need someone. They don't need him to average 20 with a strike rate of 160. They need, to be, need him to be averaging 40 or 50 and drop yep. the strike rate down a bit. There's been a couple of injury uh, changes for the Melbourne Stars. So we mentioned Nick Maddinson. He's now injured for a while. He might come at the back end of the big bash. And the other one is Daniel Worrell, the um, South Australian fast bowler who picked up an injury in the Shield game over the weekend. He couldn't bowl uh, for most of that Shield match. He only bowled 10 overs, so he's he's in doubt. Just before we move on, last one, Sandeep Lamashane, yeah. the Nepalese spinner. 
I think he could do a lot of damage. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He will. Only 17 years old. He's one of these mystery spinners that are sort of impossible to read the first few times you face them, and then you can get used to them a bit. But obviously no one's faced him over here. He's been really good in the T20 leagues across the world. I think he is going to absolutely light this competition up, as are a whole bunch of players in this team. They've got Stoinis, Maxwell, Bravo, who are just superstars, and I feel that those guys will play most of the tournament as well. There's only that little gap in the middle for the OTIs. I think they only missed two games for that. So even if some of those guys get picked for the ODIs, it won't be it won't have that much impact on the Stars roster. Lamachain is actually a good signing for the BBL purely just because of the fact that he's from Nepal. Mm. Um, as I said before on Twitter, I get amazed at how many cricket fans there are from Nepal. There's 28 million, 29 million people in Nepal, so it's bigger than Sri Lanka. They are every bit as as obsessed with cricket as India are. They will all turn their attention um, to the Big Bash now. Uh, he made his debut in the IPL last winter, and the uh, the pr- the Prime Minister of India, Narendra Modi, has said that players like him are going to help improve relations between Nepal and India. How's that for a teenager um, yeah. being told that you know you're central to relations between a, a country of 1.3 billion and your own? So uh, yeah, I can't wait to see him in action. He bowls a bit like Yashir Shah, very quick through the air. I think the stars are looking good for the top four come the back end of the Big Bash. All right, now move on to the Perth Scorchers, the powerhouse of the Big Bash. Let's let's run through a few of the players that you see standouts, Tom. Yeah, they've got a really good roster again, and there's a there's a youngster going around called Josh Philippe, who you probably have heard of, who's an absolute gun coming through for Western Australia in the JLT Cup. The only unfortunate thing is he's playing for the Sixers, Exa- Tommy. It's exactly the We're point. about the Scorchers. It's exactly the point I'm about to make. They couldn't fit Josh Philippe into their roster, which shows just how strong their roster wow. is, and he's going to open the batting and probably wicket-keep for the Sixers. So if you can't fit a player like that in, he scored. Uh, a really good 50 against Dale Stain, Rabada, etc. in the PM's 11 uh, clash. Um, Klinger's got a back injury. So he's, he's a, injured. He's, he's a, right. There's a little bit of a little doubt of him. He pulled out of the back end of the T10 league. Uh, Usman Khadir is going to be one that's going to light it up as well. The son of Pakistani great Abdul Khadir, who's got a ridiculous wrong just like his dad. But then you've got a whole bunch of guys who are on the fringe of the Australian team, which means they're probably going to be available for most of the tournament if they don't get picked up. I can see them winning the tournament again. Yeah, 100%. They've got the home ground advantage as well. Uh, that's, That's a bigger home ground advantage than a lot of the other teams. Agar... Bancroft's going to be back from his ban. Berendorf's playing T20s for Australia at the moment. Coulter Nile's been killing it well, for he, Australia. For me, he's the form player of this team. Yeah. He did so well with the bat in the T20s against India, and uh, and he's obviously a very good bowler. I think he yeah. could be one to have in your sh- super coach team. Jai Richardson, the guy who should I be giving the- these secrets away? Because I'm going to win the comp, so I need to yeah, keep just, some stuff just to let myself. Me do the talking. <laughs> Rich, uh, Jai Richardson, he, he got his start in T20 cricket and a lot of people would say he's probably more suited to the shorter forms than he is the long form, but he's absolutely killing it in the shield at the moment. Andrew Ty, the best. Uh, I mean, this guy topped the wickets in the IPL. He's noted as essentially the best quick bowler in T20 cricket in the world at the moment. Sean Marsh, if he plays, which he probably won't. It's just a red-hot team. David Willey's there. I asked for your highlights, and you've gone through the whole squad. It must be a good squad. squad. It's a a great squad. They also have who I believe is the best youngster coming through in Australian cricket at the moment, which is Cameron Green, who averages... I was sure you were going to say Sam Whiteman, the keeper. No, no. dead set, sure. He's not bad. It had some injury issues. But Cameron Green bowls 145 clicks and can bat in the top six in a short-form team. He averages below 20 in the bowling in first-class cricket so far in his career. He's a freak. And one other player, just to emphasise the strength of their squad, is Ashton Turner, who Mm. got 80 in the shield this weekend. And last summer... um, He's going to be in my super coach team. (laughs) (laughs) I think he's my favourite up-and-coming player. I just think that twice last summer he won games for the Scorchers when they looked like they were gone. So he showed a bit of class and a bit of intelligence, as well as striking at 163. And if he starts bowling again as well, uh, I think he's someone that should be considered for the Australian World Cup 50 oversight. Yeah, Uh, 100%. Tommy, will I get a big reveal when I announce my super coach team? Should should we organise some big thing on the website or... 
some special know, announcement. I, I mean, you've done it for Shane Warne oh, yeah. and Mike Hussey and all these sort of also rans. What about me? Do I get some special well, Supercoach right, team announcement? Write the story for okay, us. Okay, I have we'll to write it. it. Well, I have to write it. All right. Well, okay. <laughs> well, you're you're hoping you get ghosted. I'm less keen now. I'm less we're keen. hoping I'd ghost it for you. <laughs> yeah, I was hoping you'd ghost it <laughs> nah, for me. No, nah. if you write it, it'll go up. Okay. Um, Deal. Maybe I will then. <laughs> so, saw Sam's Landsberger from the Herald Sun get a Supercoach announcement. Yeah. Anyway, I've actually waited until this this segment, and then over the next couple of days, I'm going to start to put together my super coach team. Let's move on now to the Sydney Sixers. Well, I'll just pick out a few players that I think are going to be good to watch. Well, should Joe Denley, the English import, now he's only going to be here for about the first month of the competition. Now, interesting, when they signed him, he wasn't in the English squad, but he's been selected for the English team to the West Indies. So he's only going to play the first month. He was the player of the match in the 50 and the 20 over competition last summer in England. He bowls and bats. I think he's going to be a really good player. And I cannot wait to watch at the SCG, the Pope, Lloyd Pope, the redhead with the astonishing leg spin has been signed by the Sixers. Spin to win in the Big Bash. Yep, Lloyd Pope is going to be an absolute cult hero in Australian cricket. There's very little doubt about that. This squad, I don't feel it's particularly strong. There's not much experience. There's heaps. Wow, heaps Tommy, of not youngsters. particularly strong. Well, oh, so many youngsters that they're going to have to rely on. But the thing is, I think that they've got the best young, in terms of rookies and youngsters coming through, they've got some of the best talent going around. Jack Edwards, we know, is a freak. He's already got tons in the JLT and the Sheffield Shield this year. Josh Philippe, I've mentioned already, the score just couldn't fit him in, but I genuinely feel he'll open the batsman and keep wickets ahead of Peter Neville, who's not noted as a T20 So I've got the sixes here as top four for sure. They're going to have hardly any call-ups. They've got a good young group of players. They'll be athletic in the field. Really lacking superstars. Moses Enrique, great player. Moses is their number one player who should play for the entire season. Coming off uh, not his best season, he had a few issues off the field, but this could be the season that he really explodes after that. Joe Denley is only going to play a few games. It's not It's not a strong Tom Curran's squad. been signed by the Sixers. Yeah, again, he probably gets called up for the England team as well, so he's not going to play that many games. I don't think it's a squ- strong squad. They're going to have to rely on these young guns like Mickey Edwards, Philippe, Lloyd Pope, and there's a guy who I don't mind who I reckon could get get in the way of Lloyd Pope and take Lloyd Pope's spot in the team, and that's Dan Fallons, mm. who, who bowls some seriously leg spin. wicket like wicket taking leg leg spin. He's going to go for runs. It's it's not. It's more of a sort of Stuart McGill style of leg spin rather than a suffocating style of leg spin. He'll give it plenty of air, and he'll try and take a heap of wickets. That's what Australia needs at the international level. That the the best international T Twenty bowlers these days are the ones that really challenge the edge on both sides and are attacking bowlers. And someone, I think, needs to fill that role when the World T20 arrives in Australia in 2020. The good thing about Enriquez, watching him live at the SCG this last weekend, he looks to be in really good form. His batting was purposeful and he looked a class above everyone else um, in the whole mm. whole game. His bowling looks quicker than I remember as well. Um, so I, I think that if they're going to have any success, he's going to um, have to play a big part. But I tend to agree. I... I, I if I had to pick a wooden spoon, they're mine. You're picking them for the wooden spoon. I can't believe that. All right. So that was the Sydney Sixers. Some dissension here among the ranks. <laughs> now let's move to the Sydney Thunder, the last team on our analysis. They've had a really up and down big bash throughout their whole history. They've, they're, I think, ranked in the bottom few T20 sides around the world on win, win ratio. So, you know, they started a pretty low base the Thunder. I do like Chris Green there, off-spinning all-rounder. He's been around the world playing in the CPL and T20 leagues and T10 leagues. He's a, a genuine superstar at this level of cricket and highly regarded overseas. But who are some of the other names that jump out to you two? I actually think they'll go okay. I think they're the best of the Sydney teams. And Josh, but- Josh Butler Your mic's going to be turned Root. off soon. Josh Butler and Joe Root are going to play approximately six games. So I think they'll start really Same well. Same as Joe Denley, I think who you said wasn't going to play any. I think they'll start well and fade. <laughs> that's, that's my prediction here. Forward Ahmed is the interesting one because I genuinely feel he is the best T20 spinner 
in the big bash behind Rashid Khan and the stats back that up from last year. So they need him to go well and what can be a bit of a slow deck out there in Homebush, uh, he, he's probably the number one key given that he'll play the entire season for them. He was leading wicket-taker in the CPL. Yeah, right. So, he, yeah, a very good bowler at this level. Yeah, I agree. And it's a puzzling thing that he doesn't seem to be in the framework for an Australian call-up ever anymore. His form and his wicket-taking prowess would suggest that they should still consider him. I, I think that they look... I agree. I think they look better than the Sixers. But I also agree with you, Manners, that I don't think they look all that good. Kawaja, It'll be interesting to see how much Kawaja plays with the test matches against Sri Lanka. There's probably... Not a great deal of scope, but towards the very end, he might come back, and I think he'll make a big difference. Shane Watson, I mean, he's been in great form all year. I mean, he played a match-winning knock in the IPL final. The one thing that T20 cricket does offer is if two or three players getting red-hot form, they can carry a team. Mm. So that's what I think the Thunder would need if they had a challenge for the title. Yep. I fear for their batting later on in the season when they don't have Butler and Root. It's pretty thin they, from there. So they're getting Chris Watson. Jordan and Anton Devsic. Yeah, now, Devsic is an interesting one. He, he's a T20 gun for hire around the world. I saw him in the uh, Canadian T20 league playing a lot. Uh, he, he's a handy player. Yeah, but, I mean, it, what's their batting order going to be once Butler and Root go? I think Watson is up there. Uh, they, they look thin in the batting for me once those guys leave. But, oh, look, who knows? There's, some, there's a good youngster there, Jason Sanger, who got the ton in the Sheffield Shield. But I think he is more... They've got him down more as a future test player as His opposed to... His leg spinning could be dangerous yeah, in the and, big bash. Yeah, and I, I was about to say that I think he could have more impact with his bowling in the big big bash than his batting, even though he is a gun batsman, but as I said, more suited to the longer forms of the game than the T20 in terms of his batting. Well, that was our analysis of uh, four teams in the big bash. If you missed it last week, uh, Tom and I did the other four teams, so that's there for you. And you know, go on to supercoach.com.au, sign up. It's going to be fun. Cricket Unfiltered has started its own league. So the details of that are in the show description, the show notes for this episode. So if you want to join the Cricket Unfiltered League, um, do it. It'll be, it'll be fodder for all of us to talk about over summer. As I said, I feel uneasy about my spot in it. I just feel like I've got an unfair advantage over you, sort of most people playing the comp. <laughs> over Shane Warne. Yeah, well, how much, how much does Warnie... <laughs> how Warnie much do you know about Griffin? Yeah. <laughs> can, you, can you imagine that Warnie up late at night changing his team, you know, double game weeks oh. and all that? No. I imagine Warnie does a lot of things late at night, <laughs> and one of them would be switching his super coach team. So that's it for Cricket Unfiltered uh, this episode, two shows a week. Tommy, thank you so much for coming on. Absolute pleasure. Paul, thanks for coming back to Cricket Unfiltered. We had you on last summer. Great to have you on again. Yeah, always fun. And listeners, you've been listening to Cricket Unfiltered. I've been your host, Andrew Mensel. Next week, we have a special guest, Jason Gillespie. So can't wait to interview Dizzy. Thanks again for downloading the show, and we'll be back shortly. 